0: Hello and welcome to Arable Chat. I'm your host John Swire. Arable Chat is a podcast brought to you by Agronomist and Arable Farmer magazine. Visit aafarmer.co.uk to find out more latest agronomy and arable news.
1: In this month's news, we're thinking ahead when planning spring herbicide programmes. Advice from leading crop protection specialist Hutchinson's says to consider your spring herbicide program carefully to avoid any carryover of any residual activity from the SU herbicides, particularly if it remains dry and then turns wet later on in the season. Energy experts have said that self-generated renewable energy is an opportunity to control farm costs. Ahead of the low carbon agriculture show taking place in February, 2023, the events expert speakers are advising farmers to optimize renewable energy assets to cut the costs of electricity and gas. And finally, ahead of agriculture day at COP27, the presidents of the UK farming unions have said farming can boost its production of renewable energy to ensure farmers can continue to produce climate friendly, affordable food in the face of global energy shocks
0: first guest today is Andrew Voisey um, from uh, company Soil Capital. And um, Andrew, pleased to meet you and welcome to the podcast. Um, tell us about yourself, your background, etc. How did you end up at Soil Capital? Where did you train? Uh, and that sort of thing.
2: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. i pleased for having this conversation. So Soil Capital itself is a 10-year-old agronomy firm specialized in how to support farmers to transition to farming practices that not only improve the health of their soil, but also improve the profitability of their farm business. Me, myself, I am the head of impact and carbon for Soil Capital. So I um, look after the technical and strategic approach we take to quantifying this carbon improvements, and then monetizing that for Mm -hmm. for them. It's a business that has grown from around six or seven people four years ago to now 30 people, um, so still relatively small, Um, uh, and prior to that, you know, my background is um, as, well, originally as as an environmental scientist, but um, I've worked in the fields of, of sustainable business, Um, uh, for over 10 years now, looking really at the intersection between sectors like um, food and farming and um, the finance world and and the business world, um, constantly looking for ways that we can develop business models that work for everybody Yes, that achieve more of the environmental outcomes that we need to solve. You know the very many environmental challenges that we all know we, we face. Do you have an agricultural background? Me myself, no, um, I don't. But fifty percent at least of the soil Capital employees are trained agronomists, yeah. mm-hmm. um, coming from family farms or from farming backgrounds. We're, we're actually headquartered in Belgium. And, okay. Um, Often when I do, you know, presentations to growers or agronomists, I put up a picture of um, the grain store, uh, on the end of which is our is our office, and I and our, um, you know, we are so embedded in in rural and farming communities that we even subject ourselves to uh, to rural broadband in Belgium for our head office.
0: Uh-huh. as a proof point. Yes. yes. Excellent. So. Uh, what about soil capital, what's its main aim and, and this has changed I presume over the last five years as you said, so now you're looking at specifically carbonate, is that true? Yeah, so our mission
2: has always been to have as big an impact as possible in helping as many farmers as possible to transition to more profitable uh, regenerative farming practices that improve their soil health.
0: Yeah okay so um you recently this is how i got to know you you recently had a myth busting round table uh, to dispel some of the myths surrounding carbon so what are these myths and how have you managed to dispel them
2: (laughs) yes um i'll explain the background We, we operate today in three european countries the uk france and belgium we're working with more than 50 farmers building our carbon program and we we see see some really stark differences between those three countries in the types of conversations we're having with farmers and growers and their and their trusted advisors as well and in the uk in particular what we have observed over the years is many more misunderstandings or incomplete sets of information being presented to farmers and allowing (laughs) yeah, what we describe as myths to, to emerge and embed around how the carbon markets work. So a couple of weeks ago we brought together a range of um, agronomic advisors, distributors, industry bodies and trade associations, those with influential platforms in the industry to have a discussion about some of these myths uh, and provide, frankly some some facts and, and some figures um to try and ground us all in a common set of understandings Um, i'll give you maybe maybe two examples um happy to share more of course but the first one is is we often hear from farmers you know if i trade all of my carbon now i might regret it if i need it in the future and i think this comes about because from the farmer point of view um, many believe that carbon trading relates to all of the stock of carbon that exists in the soil before they even enter a carbon payment scheme. And so the decision to enter a carbon trading scheme can take on very significant perceived yes. implications. It can feel like you're trading away the mining rights to mm. um, the minerals in your soil. It can, it can appear almost life changing as a decision. Yes. Scheme. Yeah. But the facts are um, that the carbon markets only pay. For carbon that is added to the soil on farm each okay. year, yes. Each year you participate in a scheme. No, no one's paying for um, the carbon no sorry, already locked up in the yeah. soil. Yeah. Um, so we presented a nice kind of infographic to visualise how this this works over time. But I think you know that's an example of, of kind of putting into context one um, pretty fundamental, you know, misunderstanding. Um, and another is, is you know, if I trade carbon, I'm I'm just giving big emitters the right to pollute, and actually I'll be stuck when the supply chain comes along, expecting me to be net zero. Um, and I think here there's a lack of understanding about some of the nuances for how the carbon market works. We we all often think of carbon trading. As being about offsetting I think that's, yes we're all educated about that when we i don't know take a flight or something mm. um and we think of that as enabling high polluting companies to compensate for their emissions by paying others to reduce their emissions yes um and i think a lot of farmers look at that and they think hang on a minute if i'm if i'm going to take the risk of changing my management practices um you know, to reduce my emissions or increase soil carbon sequestration um you know maybe it doesn't feel fair that i'm enabling a high, a high-polluting company to continue doing what it yes. is or, or maybe it's just not moral to me
0: no no
2: um and so on, on this one we had a, a very powerful conversation i think for many people about the difference between um selling your carbon for offsetting and selling your carbon for insetting, which is a, a, a term that is less familiar. So offsetting yeah. is, as I've just described it, you know, your carbon improvements on an annual basis are sold to others outside your supply chain, and you can no longer claim those as a farmer because somebody mm-hmm. else is relying on them. Yeah. Within setting, the trade is happening within your supply chain. So, a company that buys the farmer's produce is also paying. For the farmers carbon improvements on the basis that the farmers carbon footprint is actually already part of say the food brands carbon footprint yes yes start by Mm. virtue of their supply chain connection Mm. Uh, and in that case um both the farmer and the food brand can claim you know talk publicly about um, their carbon improvements, you know, actually that puts the farmer in lockstep with the supply chain to arrive at, at, at yeah. zero. Mm. And, that, and that's where we as saw capital focus on in yeah. So very important to understand the, the, the implications of the choice of where you sell your carbon improvements. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and what about monetizing your carbon? How, how does that work? How does the farmer go about that?
2: Well, in any of the schemes that are available, you know, in the UK or, or more broadly, effectively, um, the farmers, the impact of the farmers' farming practices and, and the changes to those farming practices are quantified somehow. Yeah. Those quantifications are, well, they should be, <laughs> independently verified by a, yes. a party auditor and various mm-hmm. other checks and balances, and they're then turned into recognised, certified units of carbon improvement. Mm-hmm. For offsetting, those are called carbon credits. For insetting, you hear the phrase carbon certificates being used, and that is uh, uh, an asset that is then sold to a given company. Yeah. Um, according to the motives we described earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: raising and so, what should farmers' final question? What should farmers be doing to maximise their income from carbon? I mean, what, what can you do to maximise? To to increase the sequestration of carbon, etc. Uh, yeah, so I think here we're, to be
2: clear on on our scope, um, you know, a farm will have all kinds of different um, stores of carbon: trees, hedgerows, soil. Mm-hmm. We're really talking here about soil yes. carbon, at least yep. for soil capital. That that's clearly mm. where we we focus. Mm. Um, You know, the big agronomic uh, and farming practice levers that will impact both your greenhouse gas emissions and your carbon storage are, you know, your fertilization strategy, Mm -hmm. number one, because, you know, bagged fertilizer is bringing with it manufactured emissions um, in, in that supply chain. Whereas to the contrary, you know, any source of organic matter that can be put into the soil is going to help build over time, um, in principle, you know, subject to other conditions, of course, as well. So the second area is the cultivation strategy, um, because every time we expose carbon in the soil to oxygen in the atmosphere, we enable the oxidation of that carbon and the release yeah. of carbon dioxide so mm-hmm. reduced intensity of tillage you know first yeah. of all min till absolutely any, yeah you know any direct drilling that's possible yeah. will Could be part of it yeah, yeah. Uh, and last but not least um i would highlight the cover cropping strategy yeah um uh for the for the very important reason that every time we have a living plant um in the soil and photosynthesis happening we have CO2 in the atmosphere being turned into carbohydrates, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, pumped okay. out by root exudates and, and adding to the flow of carbon into the soil. So mm-hmm. those three levers are the big ones, mm-hmm. um, obviously all to be set in the context of the rotation, um, the local context, the soil type, the farmer's risk appetite and knowledge. Um, none of this uh, a cookie cutter um, no. approach mm-hmm. has all got to be adapted to the local context.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. That was most um, illuminating. Thank
2: you. My pleasure. Thanks, John, for the time. Thank you.
0: Hi there. Sorry to interrupt Arable Chat. My name is Matthew Tilt, and I'm machinery editor for Farm Contractor and Large Scale Farmer magazine, the sister publication of Agronomist and Arable Farmer. Did you know that we also have a monthly podcast? Machinery Matters brings you the biggest news and interviews from machinery manufacturers as well as information key to contractors and large-scale farming operations. Want to satisfy your machinery cravings? Search for Machinery Matters on your favourite streaming platform. My next guest is David Booty from Omex, Technical Director of Omex. Excellent. And um, we're going to talk to him about all things fertiliser and, in particular, uh, nitroshield. So, David, first of all, a bit of background how did you get into the industry and and, and where have you come from and and, and what have you done with your life and
3: Okay, well, I started out as a uh, crop protection agronomist in the 1980s, mm-hmm. um, so had uh, very well around 40 years experience in the industry um, and moved from uh, crop protection to the fertilizer side about 13 years ago, something like that yes. when I joined OMex. Mm-hmm. And with the company now I look after their. Uh, trials and product development, technical support, all those aspects of uh, the fertiliser business. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So
0: tell us about um, UAN and the problems uh, with pollution, etc., and what we're going to do about it, and in particular what Omex are going to do about it.
3: Sure. Um, The particular concern is about uh, ammonia gas pollution, Mm -hmm. um, which has been rising in the UK over the last decade or so. So whereas uh, with greenhouse gases and ammonia isn't a greenhouse gas, doesn't contribute towards global warming, um, with a lot of the greenhouse gases, control measures have tended to reduce those, but ammonia has been spiking in the last few years. And around 87% of ammonia emissions come from agricultural sources. The great bulk of that is from uh, animals and the manure that they produce, manures and slurries, around 80% of all the ammonia that comes from agriculture is from that source. But the remaining 20% or so is from nitrogen fertilisers. And the serious issue with ammonia is that it's a a pollutant. It can cause human health issues, particularly with people who've got breathing difficulties. And it also cycles through the atmosphere in a fairly short time span, so you can get depositions of nitrogen in, in places where you don't want it, like sensitive uh, heath habitats, for instance. So um, it's environmentally damaging as well. So it's important that we reduce emissions if we if we possibly can. Okay, and and
0: and how much pressure are you from the DEFRA to do this?
3: Well. Um, DEFRA started out with a fairly blunt-handed approach. A couple of years ago, uh, they made an announcement that uh, most of the uh, ammonia emissions from fertilisers were coming from either granular urea or liquid uh, urea ammonium nitrate, which is 50% urea, Mm -hmm. um, and that they were minded to ban the use of urea altogether because that that would solve the problem, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Create uh, many more, but yes. Exactly. So uh, many in the the, uh, agriculture industry quickly pointed out that that could have unintended consequences. Um, So what happened was uh, the agriculture industry, the NFU, and other interested bodies got together and approached DEFRA uh, to suggest an alternative approach where the industry self-regulates and introduces measures to mitigate ammonia emissions, uh, and then we can carry on using urea-based fertilisers.
0: Mm-hmm. and and this is where you came in with with the sort of development of nitro shield is that right
3: yes so one of the ways of reducing ammonia emissions from urea fertilizers is to use a urease inhibitor um, added to the fertilizer whether it's a, uh, added to the granular or the liquid fertilizer um, and that reduces the risk so Just to explain, urease is a a ubiquitous enzyme. It's in soils, all soils really, produced by plants and by microbes. And that is the natural answer to digesting urea and turning it into nitrates that plants can use. And uh, before we had fertilizers, well, that was how plants got access to nitrogen from animal urine, for instance. Yes, yeah. And this enzyme very quickly acts on any urea uh, that's applied. Um, that's not a problem if the fertilizer is incorporated into the soil quickly uh, or the soil is damp uh, colder conditions but if it's very warm and dry and fertilizer sits on the soil surface then some of that um, conversion is into ammonia gas which goes into the atmosphere
0: so so um, you develop shield and that prevents this
3: yes um, so what it does is it uh, binds with the urease enzyme in preference to the applied urea. Okay. So it, it shields the urea from binding with the enzyme for a period of time. Yeah. We don't want to do that indefinitely because no. the process needs to happen in order for Absolutely. nitrate to become available. But yes. what it does mean is you get a uh, an extra number of days of protection, particularly in difficult or challenging conditions, mm-hmm. giving time for that fertiliser to, to get into the soil and get converted into nitrate.
0: Excellent. Now, have you launched this? Are you about to launch it? Or?
3: Yes, we just launched it last week. Excellent.
0: Um, Good timing. Thankful-
3: there. Thankfully, the um, uh, the first uh, whisperings that this uh, change was going to take place were about two years ago. Yeah. And um, the rules on mitigating ammonia emissions don't become compulsory until 2024, although they okay. come into place in 23 next season yep. so that gave us quite a good lead time yeah to do our research properly see what inhibitors are available uh what other methods we could use and to test it thoroughly before we launched it so mm-hmm. we're very happy that we've been able to do all of that before going to our customers and saying this is what you need to do and and okay. why
0: now i have heard a rumor that um there is a an unintended um bonus as well by using this that you get um a significant yield increase is that true yes
3: yes you do um over the, the last three years of of trials independent trials we've seen an average of something like 0.3 0.32 of a ton yield increase mm-hmm. uh in this year's trials we did our own trials this last season agronomic trials and we got up to 0.39 of a ton so on today's grain prices that's worth um, 70, 80 pounds a, a hectare, something like that, on a 10-ton crop, which is something like a 10-to-1 return on the cost of the inhibitor. So um, it's pretty much of a case for farmers as to why wouldn't you use it?
0: Yes. And uh, so that everyone's a winner.
3: Yes. Um, and we're also seeing slight increases in grain protein as well. Protein yeah. is constructed from nitrogen, partly, mm-hmm. Um, so that makes sense as well. So all of that improves nitrogen yeah. use efficiency, mm-hmm. which is the buzzword of the day, really, with yeah. nitrogen fertiliser. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've only launched it last
0: week, so but have you had much interest?
3: Well, encouragingly, for the reasons that you're saying, that there is a, a benefit to the use for the yes. farmer, mm-hmm. uh, quite apart from the social benefit of reducing uh, ammonia emissions, which is very important, Um, quite a lot of customers are saying to us, well, we'll go ahead and we'll start using this in 2023, even though it's not compulsory. They recognize um, there's a benefit for them, there's Mm -hmm. a benefit for society. So uh, a win-win, as you said. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, David. That was was really good. Thank you. Okay, pleasure. Thank you, John.
0: Thanks for listening to Arable Chat. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Why not leave us a review?